Greetings and good to have you here. Happy Monday, and I hope your week is off to a terrific start. Uh, later on this hour, uh, don't know if you caught Roy Green on the weekend here. Uh, Roy has done the nationally syndicated weekend show on the Chorus Network for years. Uh, he had with him two of the men at the uh, Kibbutz Rayim, one of the 22 areas in Israel that was attacked by the Hamas terrorists on October the 7th. And they have their own little defense force in the kibbutz. Seven people. They grabbed their firearms and held off 80 Hamas terrorists. Uh, a number of people were killed in that kibbutz. Uh, it was compelling, the interview. So if you missed it on the weekend, I'm going to replay part of it later this hour. Make sure you're here. First, though, everywhere you turn, and just to give you some context, uh, when we hear of police officers dying in the line of duty, uh, in Canada, uh, and often this is in contrast to the U.S., even other parts of the world, in an average year, we will look across the provinces and see two or three, or maybe in a terrible year like 1962, ten officers who lose their lives. Uh, officer homicides in every single region of this country are not usually high. You know this past 12 months, and even the months preceding it, have involved a number of police officers being murdered in the line of duty. Uh, the RCMP in Saskatchewan reporting a 30% increase in assaults on officers just over the past five years. And it's gone up every single year. And when you look at the graph, we are talking about several hundred officers uh, assaulted in a given year. In fact, 471 just last year. Uh, city police departments confirmed the same thing. Uh, Estevan two weeks ago. Do you remember the man being processed after he had murdered his mother? Wrestles a gun away from an officer, shoots the officer... A nearby officer goes in, takes the man down. He dies. The officer, thankfully, is at home now. He's going to recover. He'll be okay. But what is happening in this country where officers' lives, and officers are that unique leadership quality, trained, it's in their DNA, though, they run toward trouble when the rest of us are running away for our lives. What has brought them to this position of vulnerability. Thomas Carrick is the commissioner of the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police. He's also on the board of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, and he has been outspoken in the need for something to change. Commissioner Carrick joining us in Ontario this morning. Uh, Toms, thanks so much for taking our call. Good to have you here. Whoops. Have we got uh, Commissioner Carrick? Hmm. Okay. Uh, I have not got him, Brando. Um, let's make sure we reestablish that connection. Uh, Brando, you've got that handled? Okay. So uh, Thomas Carrick joining us in Ontario. Um, you do have him? Okay. Hey, Commissioner, thanks so much for taking our call. Well, sir, thank you very much for making some time for me this morning. And tell me a little about what has prompted, in terms of just the landscape in Canada, your comments in recent weeks. Well, 
it is uh, it has been a direct result of the increase in police officer homicides and the very serious injuries that you've spoken to in your opening comments. There's much work that needs to be done. There's a lot that can be done, and police officers deserve to have safe communities to work in. If our police officers are not safe, then nobody is safe. Are we moving toward, though, just in terms of the cycle, the last year and a half-ish? Um, you know, I, I hate to say it, but we hear about it so much. Is this becoming a different part of the landscape? Well, I certainly hope it's not. I would hope that Canadians have not been desensitized as a result of the rash of police officer homicides. Uh, Quite to the contrary, I would hope that they would be enraged, calling for action and standing behind their police. We do see pending legislation in the form of Bill C-48 that we're hoping will be fully enacted. And I do believe that that will be a major step forward in creating a safer environment for our police to work in and safer communities right across this country. C-48 is a series of bail reforms. Uh, Not bad for some of us who have read the bill. I wish it went further, but the uh, Supreme Court has clearly weighed in on its view of bail. Uh, Can you give us a sense of what's wrong with bail application and bail laws today? Yes, certainly. From my perspective, uh, to put it in uh, the most layman's terms, I don't think there has been appropriate weight given to protecting victims from repeat violent offenders, protecting communities from repeat violent uh, offenders, and our police officers. There has not been enough weight put on the risk to public safety that offenders pose and too much weight uh, given on other circumstances. So it is nice to see the proposed legislation. As you've said, John, take a few steps towards bringing those weights back into alignment and we see more balance and I'm hoping we will see more offenders who pose a danger held in custody until their trials. Thomas Carreek is the commissioner of the OPP. Is there a situation now, though, with the amount of street-level uh, drug addictions and mental health, where you have certain people out in the community who are completely at a point of psychosis, uh, that they're that dangerous to the public, but mainly to police officers and public safety people who try to help them? Well, we certainly see a connection between mental illness in some cases and violence. A number of the police officer homicides that have taken place over the last 12 months, there is a correlation between mental illness with some of the offenders, but also repeat violent behavior. And when they, uh, the mental illness is leading to a pattern of violent behavior that puts others at risk, Uh, I do believe that that warrants strong consideration towards incarceration. It doesn't mean that the offender doesn't get treatment and doesn't get help, uh, but we need to make sure that first and foremost, that victims are protected. The Canadian Victims Bill of Rights is not given enough weight in our judicial system, and it's an important piece of legislation that needs to bring balance and perspective to ensure that we have a safe society. What about the overall level of the relationship between the the police establishment and the average member of the public? I mean, I'm of an age where you know, there was a natural amount of respect and deference uh, to an officer carrying out their duties. A lot of cops, friends of mine, tell me that relationship is different from a traffic stop to an interaction. 
It certainly can be. Um, and I know our officers feel that each and every day. You know, a big piece of that is the social media momentum of, you know, defund the police and, and hatred and strong attitudes towards anti-authority figures, whether they be police or, or other positions of authority. And we do see that playing out in our communities each and every day. And when people are brought before the judicial system, if there are little to no consequences, um, there's nothing to correct a pattern of disrespectful and bad behavior. I was quite encouraged. There's a recent poll out by Legette uh, who references the police as being the most respected institution in the entire country. So I do believe the vast majority of Canadians respect their police, appreciate the difficult jobs that they do, but unfortunately, um, those that our officers are encountering day in and day out that are on the other side of the law, that's not the case. Commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police, Thomas Carreek. Last word to you. What can we as Canadians who watch this with, with mounting concern do? We can all advocate with our elected officials to see appropriate laws in place, to see those laws administered as they were intended, and offenders held accountable for their actions. And we can, each of us, take every opportunity we can to say thank you to our police officers who risk their physical safety, their psychological well-being each and every day. They're ordinary people called upon to do extraordinary things that others are either unwilling or unable to do, and they deserve our thanks, our appreciation, and our respect. Commissioner, thanks for taking the time this morning. Thank you, John. Greatly appreciated. Tom Carreek is the Commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police. He's a board member of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. And the Chiefs Association is trying to make sure there's sufficient support. And he did concede it's a set of small steps to bail reform. Uh, When you read Bill C-48, quite interesting. Canada had, after the Supreme Court of Canada decision, I want to say it was in 2017, where it really weighed in and revisited the whole idea of bail, arguably, I would make the point, to the benefit of every single person charged, sometimes people who are dangerous, people who should not be let out. Uh, The government of Canada at that point, and I think it was Jody Wilson-Raybould first, brought in a series of amendments to the bail laws that began to dilute them using the exact same language from a particularly notorious Supreme Court of Canada case. Then her successor, David Lametti, brought in a series of amendments in Bill C-48. Now the present minister is responsible for moving that through the House of Commons. But of course, the concern is just on the crowded political agenda, will the Canadian government start now to make public safety and officer safety a higher concern when courts are able to deny release. And, uh, you know, the old idea of the revolving door, I mean, every officer's known that for years. But there are people who are sprung on their own recognizance, uh, very again, supervisory terms. So, of course, we always watch for that on the police beat, Every single time there's a high-speed chase, a takedown, a drug bust, what is the series of charges? Breach of conditions, which means they're already out on bail or conditional release. 
on a whole series of other offenses, some of them pretty dangerous. And I think for many of us, we've gotten to a point where you might get one bite, but you don't get more than that. You might be released once because you were in the wrong place with a gun in your car, uh, accessory, uh, involved in a serious crime. The second time you get roped in, you're going to stay in jail until your trial. Now, we still don't have that even in C-48. But eventually, the pendulum will swing back. But the way the pendulum has swung has been a long 40-year arc over this way. And a lot of us are hoping it might start swinging back sometime soon. What do you think? Uh, do you? I mean, I hope we are simply in a really bad cycle. Because when you look at the number of police killings uh, in Canada, uh, significant numbers this year, over 10. And uh, at one time, uh, 10 even affect situations where several officers were killed. You remember Mayerthorpe, you remember Moncton. You didn't have uh, 10 or 12 officers killed in the line of duty in a year. That's the now the landscape we're into. And it's really, really serious. So what do we do about it? 877-332-8255. This is 980 CJME and 650 CKOM. I'm drawn warmly. I mentioned a, a couple of the mass killings of RCMP officers, Mayorthorpe, Moncton. I neglected to mention Spiritwood when officers Robin Cameron and Mark, Mark Bordage were murdered in 2006. But here's an interesting juxtaposition. We're talking about the number of police officer homicides, 10 in the past year in Canada. The last time you found 10 in a year, you'd have to go back to 1962. In recent years, the number of officer homicides has ranged. Let's just go over the, uh, let's go back to 2005 with Marathorpe. Three officers were murdered in Marathorpe, you remember? That year in Canada, four officers. The next year in Spirit, with two Mounties murdered. That year in Canada, three. So you had very low numbers. Uh, in the last number of years in the 2000s, ranging from four officers to zero some years. When you have 10 officers who fall in the line of duty in a year, a number of them RCMP officers, I think two of the 10, Ontario, where five of the ten were murdered, this is really, really significant. So I'm hoping on behalf not just of the Canadian Police Association and the uh, chiefs of police that we're able as a country to come to terms with this. Whether it is certain homeless people in certain urban areas completely. I remember the Shailen Yang, remember the uh, RCMP officer in Vancouver? Um stabbed by a guy who was completely psychotic and she walked in just to try and break up a scuffle and a homeless guy in a complete psychosis turns on her with a knife, kills her. So you've seen these sorts of cases happening with more frequency. You've also though, and up to and including people with serious mental illnesses, why and how the bail laws spring them out as easily as they do, it's unacceptable. We've got to change it. 
Uh, okay, moments ago, or certainly in the last 10 minutes, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders have posted, the Rough Riders have released American defensive back Nick Marshall. So Nick Marshall, we were telling you about facing a gun charge in his hometown of Columbus, Georgia. He's originally from uh, where? I think he's from Georgia, from Pineview. But Columbus has been his home in recent years. Uh, he was a standout defensive back, I always thought, with the Riders. Uh, in his CFL career, which began in 2018, uh, in that time he's played 77 games, 150 tackles, 20 interceptions. And the guy's got great hands and great situational awareness, but he didn't start as a defensive back. He was a quarterback, uh, played with uh, University of Georgia, released for undisclosed uh, violations of the team policy in college. Then he goes back to junior college, ends up at Auburn, takes them all the way to the Rose Bowl in 2013. That was the miracle season. Then he plays in the NFL for the Jags and the Jets, suspended by the Jets for performance-enhancing drugs, then finds his way up to Canada. In 2018, he's been here. Arrested last week with a 32-year-old woman, each of them charged with a gun possession felony, apparently in possession of a handgun that had been modified and found in their car. So, Nick Marshall, released by the Saskatchewan Rough Riders this morning. This is 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. Thanks for checking in. I know I'm now doing this process. <laughs> Wake up this morning and think, there are only two weeks left. But I was the one who, look, at. I told the higher-ups, I said, and this thing was coming for about a year, year and a half, I said, when we wind it up, let's not do it until we have the absolutely perfect person to be the new host. And it will not be the John Gormley show for obvious reasons. It'll be the Evan Bray Show starting two Mondays from now. But let's not do long goodbyes. Let's announce it, do a couple of weeks of the show, and then move off in. And I hope it's not the sunset. I just hope it's the twilight. Let's just, you know, lots of time left, but it just won't be on the radio. So, um, gosh, now the days begin to tick away. And thank you so much. Many of you have been uh, way too kind. <laughs> but it's not often in your life when every single person that reaches out says nice things. So thank you all. And I'm I'm overwhelmed and I'm in your debt because you are the people who have made this show what you have over the years. Now, would it be a routine Gormley show if I didn't weigh in a little, ahem, on Justin Trudeau? Because we began the show this morning. Tom Korski was here. And I agree with Korski. The prime minister was absolutely unequivocal when he condemned the October 7th Hamas terrorist attacks in Israel. Uh, he was unequivocal when he said Canada will stand behind Israel. We support Israel's right to exist. We support Israel's right to defend itself. The PM weakened, though, in recent days, and that's so typical, Justin Trudeau. I mean, this is the virtue signalers 
virtue signaler every time he says, and he's talking about, you know, this kindergarten getting shot at twice in four days in Montreal with guns. Good Lord. And what does Trudeau lapse into? You know, anti-Semitism is unacceptable, comma, and so is Islamophobia, comma. Like, he keeps putting Islamophobia and anti-Semitism together because he has to. That's the Trudeau brand. You remember I told you the story, and I wouldn't have told this one again if it wasn't for a newspaper in Prague a year ago, just over a year ago. Marie and I were on holidays August, September last year in Greece. We have some friends who live over in Santorini. We were over there, and we were in the island of Rhodes, which I'd only read about, you know, the Colossus of Rhodes, um, the earliest works of St. Paul, you know, the Ephesians at Ephesus, just over there. I mean, so it's this old, old town, um, the old city of Rhodes, walled city, beautiful. So we're there. We end up one night going out on one of those you know, sunset cruises, and we're just hanging out. You have dinner. You just putt-putt around the island a little bit. And there was this delightful young couple from Liverpool, two kids. I would have put them maybe 40-ish, the guy and the girl. And we're all just sitting together, and we're kind of hanging out and visiting with them. And he's a civil engineer. And I start the Saskatchewan sales pitch, which I do anywhere in the world. You know, we're the place that, you know, some of the, like the world's biggest potash mine under construction, oil, uranium. And he looks at me, <laughs> and, this, and we're talking the Beatles and Liverpool and everything else. And he says, well, I couldn't imagine of all countries I would ever look at working in, I would never move to Canada, ever. And I said, well, why? That blankety, blankety, blank Justin Trudeau. He's going to destroy your country. How? And then I, so then I sort of laughed it off and said, well, that's kind of the way I talk. Um, but I said, this too shall pass. I mean, Trudeau's not going to be here forever. And then the guy said, I don't want to be in a country with the kind of people who elected him. Now, that was a tougher one. How do you overcome that, right? So I've told you the story before. From Prague, and here's a translation from Czech to English. The danger to Canada is not Justin Trudeau, but a citizenry capable of entrusting a man like him to be prime minister. It will be far easier to limit and undo the follies of a Trudeau government than to restore the necessary common sense and good judgment to a depraved electorate willing to have such a man for their prime minister. The problem is much deeper and far more serious than Trudeau, who is a mere symptom of what ails the country of Canada. Blaming the Prince of Fools should not blind anyone to the vast confederacy of fools who made him their prince. The country of Canada can survive a Trudeau who is, after all, merely a fool. It is less likely to survive a multitude of fools such as those who made him the prime minister. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> From a Czech uh, perspective. Um, oh, by the way, uh, over the weekend, uh, the uh, guy who runs 338canada.com, that's the uh, poll spotting uh, website. And um, 
what's his name? The rocket scientist from uh, Montreal. Oh, my goodness. Um, we've had him on many, many times. So 338 Canada aggregates all the different political polls. The latest poll, so he analyzes all the polls, averages them out, weights them, and he says the average political poll as of yesterday is showing the Conservatives at 40% support, the Liberals at 27 So that's a 13-point gap. That is significant. The NDP has fallen below 20, but they're still hanging on at 18 So what's interesting is when he does this seat projections, and this is really speculative because depends on the size of the poll, depends on a number of things. So he goes across the country of 338 seats. If an election were held today, Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives would win 204 of the 338. That is a massive majority. Uh, Interestingly, uh, the Conservatives in a province like B.C. would win 31 of 42 seats. I don't need to tell you about Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, Manitoba, the Tories would win half of the seats, 7 of 14. But here's Ontario. 121 seats in Ontario. The Tories would win 82 of the 121. It's pretty significant. Atlantic, they'd win 22 of 32. In Quebec, where the Conservatives can't buy seats, typically, uh, they're up, but they would win 15 of 78. The Bloc Quebecois would pull the most at 32, the Liberals 30, uh, the Conservatives 15. But the interesting part about Quebec, don't ever forget this, the election isn't being held today. And like 1984, when Brian Mulroney won 211 seats, the largest number of seats ever by any party in Canadian history, when the election's on, and if there is a big landslide coming, Quebec moves en masse to the party they think's going to win. So a lot of those Bloc Quebecois seats, 32, if a big landslide was coming, a big chunk of those 32 would go conservative, which would then propel Paul Hiff to like 220, which is just hard to even imagine. And then, of course, you know what happened the closer he gets over to? There'd be certain other areas of the country who say, not so fast. <laughs> I'm not voting for him now. So there's often a pullback in that respect. So this is all wildly speculative, but it is what it is. Okay, I told you, uh, Roy Green on the weekend interviewed two men, Ela Cohen and Harel Oren. They live in a kibbutz called Kibbutz Rayim, attacked by Hamas terrorists on October the 7th. These two men, Ela and Harel, along with five others, provide security inside the kibbutz. These seven men fought off the terrorists. And then they appeared on Roy Green to talk about it. I'll play you some excerpts of that next on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. John Gormley. So on the Roy Green show here on the weekend, he interviewed Ela Cohen and Harel Oren, both of Kibbutz Rayim, attacked by dozens of Hamas terrorists October the 7th, and they broke down how the attack began. 
in the, our kibbutz, uh, a member called me and she told me that uh, her brother family drove from our kibbutz to the next kibbutz and uh, they've been shot by terrorist troop. Uh, it's not normal. Uh, we never expect that the terrorists will cross the fence and it was, you know, it's uh, supposed to be a very uh, huge fence, unpenetrated fence, and uh, they've been shot, they injured, and uh, we are in a, a new powerful day to wake up. Citizen and under attack. On the day of the seventh in October, uh, we actually uh, locked our wives and kids in uh, the warriors. The, we locked our wife and kids inside the shelter and went to protect the kibbutz. Went to protect the most. We we was very worried about our family, but it was important. To, uh, to go there and uh, to stand against this uh, terrorist. So these are the two men, uh, Ela Cohen and Harel Oren, and they said they were at a bit of an advantage once they'd locked their families up about the way they had stored their weapons. In our kibbutz, all the warriors had their weapons and the equipment and the radio at home. So when we was uh, calling them to, co- to come out, there was uh, warriors from the first second. And the warriors, of which they were two, there were seven altogether, then defended Kibbutz Rayum against at least 80 Hamas terrorists. At the end, we uh, count 48 terrorists, that, the bodies that we took out. We had a, a very tough uh, battle or fight, and... Uh, we make the difference. We were very low, very small, uh, without the very good weapon that uh, the Hamas terrorists came with, the RPG and the hand grenade uh, 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 gun. And uh, I think Aval made a very good job to save our kibbutz. And these were the two men, uh, Ela Cohen and Harrell Oren, speaking with Roy Green. They wanted to make it clear, though, the battle was truly life or death. I want to, t- to say uh, to the people of Canada and to the people of the world that uh, what we was doing is protecting our house, protecting our family. That was what drives us to, to win to keep them uh, the, the, the same place that they are. We didn't, we, we, we didn't beat them. We just delayed them enough time so the army can come and, uh, and solve the problem. But still, we was seven uh, people against uh, something like 80 or 100 uh, terrorists. And what was uh, the difference between us and them is that we couldn't, uh, we didn't have the the luxury to lose, we had, we had to uh, win this uh, battle. We could not lose the battle because if we will lose the battle, the whole kibbutz will pay the price. It's, the whole family. It's a matter of us or them. There is no question. There is no question. It's us, and we fight uh, 
till the end and uh, we made a difference with a methodic of fighting uh, and they came to just to kill to kidnap to hostage to rape they didn't see by them eyes what they are really uh, uh, doing by kind of any methodic they just came to kill and uh, we stop we breathe a little bit and we take uh, chances but uh, calculated chances that we must do our best to sa- to save these kibbutz this is what we've done the two men on roy green on the weekend harel oren and ila cohen part of the seven so-called warriors at the kibbutz Reim defending on that day october the 7th uh while they were able to repel the terrorists. Their community, though, did not escape unscathed. Uh, we lost uh, a lot of kibbutz members. We lost a lot of uh, citizens who came to hide in his in uh, kibbutz Reim, and uh, as well, we have a lot of loose of soldiers and. Uh, police uh, uh, officers and uh, policemen that uh, came to fight with us, unfortunately. Yes, there was one incident where the terrorists, actually, uh, they got into a neighborhood which we was not controlled, and they killed uh, uh, 81 uh, women in her bed that she couldn't uh, close the door of the shelter. They get into her house, they killed her, uh, like uh, in cold blood. They continue to the next house. An excerpt from the uh, Roy Green interview on the weekend. You can find it on our podcast if you'd like to listen to the uh, entire conversation. Harel Oren and Ila Cohen, both members of Kibbutz Rayim, and uh, they were among the seven members of the kibbutz who were the designated warriors. Their job was to protect if attacked and... Uh, They did that against an invading force of about 80 Hamas terrorists that day on October the 7th. And so we watch now, uh, here half a world away, uh, demonstrations have continued. Two different Canadians have been charged finally with promoting hate speech. Uh, One of them arrested near Toronto. He's an Ottawa man, Mohamed Asidi, already on bail and released from a number of incidents of assault break and enter. And then in uh, Calgary, uh, a man there, Wassam Cooley, also charged with mischief, causing a disturbance, and a hate motivation to his offense in a series of demonstrations uh, next door in Alberta. This is 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.